Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 305 of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Adam. Jill is still in Seattle at the American Library Association Midwinter Conferences, so you just have me for the intro. Today's episode is an interview I did with Sarah Smarsh, who wrote a book called Heartland, a memoir of working hard and being broke in the richest country on earth. Sarah is from Kansas, and she resides there currently and has been there most of her life. She is a, a journalist, and her book is a finalist for the National Book Award and the Kirkus Prize. It's wonderful. Uh, it tells her family's story of generations of poverty and struggle as farmers and uh, just takes a look at life in middle America that oftentimes gets overlooked. Um, if you are a longtime listener, you may remember that we interviewed Matthew Desmond about his book, Evicted, and this kind of conjures up the same thoughts and ideas. Uh, we connected really well because the city I'm originally from is a small factory city on the coast of Lake Erie that is unfortunately kind of dying because the factories and steel mills have all closed. And so the the situation that my city is in is very similar to the situation about where she grew up. And uh, we had a really great conversation about uh, the way that politics are affecting this country and uh, the miscommunication that's out there and um, just the the tragic lives that people live that go unnoticed because a lot of times people don't want to pay attention to them. So um, it's a little heavy, but it's really a really great conversation. And the book is even better. Again, it's called Heartland. It's like can't recommend it highly enough. If you have thoughts on this episode or any episode, you can always email us at professionalbooknerds at overdrive.com, and you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at probooknerds. You can also visit our website, professionalbooknerds.com, where we have all sorts of great information and, and fun stuff going on there. Um, so I hope you guys borrow, buy, track this book down, whatever you have to do to read it. It's important and timely and powerful and Sarah is one of the journalistic defining voices um, of our time, so I hope you will check it out. Uh, so without further ado, I'm going to get to the conversation I had with Sarah here on the Professional Book Nerds podcast. Hi everyone, it's Adam again, and I am incredibly excited to be joined today by Sarah Smarsh, a journalist who has covered socioeconomic class, politics, and public policy for some of the largest publications in the world. Her recent memoir, Heartland, was an instant bestseller and was uh, selected as a National Book Award finalist for nonfiction, among and some other things. And I didn't say this before we started uh, talking, before we started recording, but you're also probably the smartest person I follow on Twitter. So Sarah, thank you for joining us today. Uh, thank you, Adam. And that is high praise. Thanks. <laughs> I will. I literally will say when your post is sent through the pitch to chat with you, I got very excited. I was like, oh my God, that's like one of the people that I go to for intelligent political conversations on Twitter. So I was very, very <laughs> excited. Um, can you maybe kick us off by giving our listeners a little bit of background in your memoir, uh, Heartland, just so they have an idea of what we're going to be getting into today? Sure. So uh, Heartland, uh, a memoir of working hard and being broke in the richest country on earth, um, is my first book. Um, and it's really a family tale about my 
coming of age among many generations of what we might call the working poor in rural Kansas. I grew up on a wheat and cow farm 30 miles west of Wichita, and um, and and the the book also seeks to comment on um, the big picture of the uh, economic and political forces that shape the private experiences of a family. And so, in that way, it's it's not uh, quite a classic memoir, um, but it's but it's definitely rooted in a personal story. And a lot of the topics that you write about in your memoir in your in the book, there are things that you very frequently report on and write. You know long-form pieces or short-form pieces, but certainly not to the length of a book. So what made you mm. want to write this much kind of longer version of the story now? Mm. Well, this is a, an interesting question because um, I began work on this book, believe it or not, and it, lest your listeners think that the um, the book project was contrived for this particular political <laughs> moment where where class is, you know, suddenly at the fore of national discourse. I got my first research grant to work on this book when I was 22 years old in 2002 as a senior in college at the University of Kansas. So, um, so I really, my entire professional career as a journalist had this project in a drawer. Many of those years I was too broke to have the time and resources necessary to give it my full attention, uh, but I always knew I was going to write about my family. Now, um, you know, I, I sensed as a first-generation college student in particular that there was something about my family that was different um, in in the um, context of, of culture and politics and society that in, in a way that, that my, my country was not articulating when I was a young person, and, and that had everything to do with class, which we're just now sort of reckoning with as a nation. And along the way of my work as a journalist, those 15-plus years that I was um, trying to uh, accomplish the book project, I gained a language and an understanding for articulating why my family's story might matter. Um, and And so... So, you know, why now about the book? I suppose that um, uh, really what happened is I, I always, the book was always there, and, and the timing right now is just that, like, the, the country was, was ready for it um, at in, in more recent years. Um, I spent, like, 10 years not being able to get a literary agent. They would read the passages from this book and be like, no, oh, you've got a, a, you know, a way with a turn of phrase, but why does this matter? And, um, <laughs> um and now uh, we're at a moment, I guess, where where the the United States is is ready to talk about it. That's that's so interesting that you say that, and it kind of leads into something I was really curious about. And I I told you this before we started recording, but you know when the book was released, I it hit incredibly close to home for me. I grew up in this really small city called Lorraine. It's outside of Cleveland, Ohio, and uh, mm-hmm. it's on the shores of Lake Erie, and it's it's a factory town with a failing steel mill, and there's. You'll see all these multi-generational families struggling with the closure of the the steel mill and a bunch of failing industries, unfortunately. And so I get when you release this book, I get why it resonated so much with me. But I'm curious why you think it did resonate so much with people who may not have kind of similar backgrounds to you and I. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know that, like you said, class is such a prevalent thing in the national discourse now. But why is it, do you think, that people from different backgrounds are finally ready to hear stories like this and maybe have a better understanding. Yeah, well, I think part of it is that we are at a, such a moment of historic wealth inequality and economic disparity that they, even middle-class folks who 
to my eyes as a kid appeared flat out wealthy, um, are in their own lives experiencing the class struggle of this country and often a downward mobility rather than an upward, which is the American dream. And so there's something sadly universal about that subtitle of my book that involves working hard and being broke in a country that has plenty of resources seemingly to go around. Um, and so I, you know, I, I hear from people who, who maybe had more than I did in material terms growing up, but nonetheless have that sense of um, not being fairly compensated for their labor. Um, but, but even apart from economics, you know, I think there are a lot of angles of the book that maybe have, aren't often um, uh, touched upon in contemporary literature from like rural life. There's, there's, you know, while I think our, the population of the country is only like 16% rural, there are a whole mess of people and probably, you know, that's a higher percentage of that who, who are only one or two generations away from the farm. They're the generations that moved to the city. That so-called rural flight has been happening for a hundred years, but, um, but it's, a, it, it's a phenomenon that we don't talk about um, very often in part because people who come from, the, from those places um, are less likely to end up with some sort of national platform to be heard. Um, and so that's a, a piece of the puzzle I hear a lot of, of people say they connect to. And, and also, um, you know, gender. There's sort of a um, um, the way that the news media that I'm part of has portrayed the working class and is would suggest that it's all all white male conservatives and i think that um, my book makes more space for um while, while i am a white woman there is um, you know a stronger female component to the story i tell for obvious reasons and and also i i you know uh, tried to make sure that along the way of of uh, telling my story that I was um, giving due attention to people of color and indigenous tribes who, you know, are um, always experiencing these class issues in complicated ways um, and intersectional ways that uh, people who have purported to speak for the white working class have kind of artfully ignored, I think. Man, there's so much in that answer I want to unpack. I I'm just sitting here thinking about all of the various types of people who your story would resonate for. Not even, not only people who you know come from a rural background. I was just thinking while you're talking about how there's this. You know, it's almost like a running meme now on Twitter about you know making fun of millennials and and younger people that are mm. part of the work class who don't. You know, people say that they are so. You know, they they don't appreciate what they have and and all these things. And meanwhile, there there's people. You know my age and, and younger and a little bit older that are working two and three jobs and doing freelancing on the side and just to make ends meet. And I imagine the people that, you know, even if they come from a, you know, an, an inner city and they had a good upbringing, that they're still probably struggling. And, you know, even those types of people can appreciate this story of someone who was able to kind of, you know, break the cycle, so to speak. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I'm Curious, a really big part of your story um, is that your family was pretty nomadic between your grandmother and, and your mother. They moved around a whole bunch. And I was reading about the the countless different places that they lived and the different schools that you attended and your, you know, the people in your family attended. I was thinking about, um, there's a book called Evicted by Matthew Desmond. I don't know if you had a chance to read it last sure. year. Yeah. Okay, so we had a chance to sit down and talk with him last year, and he talked a lot about this 
kind of transient lifestyle that people who are impoverished have to live because of all the times they get removed from their housing. And, and it creates this vicious cycle where these people don't have the ability to put down roots anywhere. And so there's generation after generation of people who kind of disassociate themselves with the society they're a part of. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I feel like the, the difference, obviously, is Matthew was writing about inner city stories of poverty. But how do you think this kind of transient life like, how do you think it's affecting farming towns and maybe like these flyover states that people don't think about unless they live there? Mm, yeah, gosh, what an important question, because I, I think a lot about place as a factor of American identity that I think is often overlooked, um, as, as one might guess that from the title of my book being <laughs> literally about a place or an area. Um, I, you know, there's, there's a few things I want to say about that first, um, you know, I I'm a fifth-generation Kansas farm kid on my dad's side of the family, and that's where the, the farm experience and, the, and a deep-rootedness comes from in my family story, and that's part of the book. Um, on my mother's side of the family, though, um, they were mostly women who were, grew up in the Wichita area, N- not a bustling um, metropolis by uh, you know New York City standards, but it's nonetheless the biggest city in Kansas. Um, and so they sort of thought of themselves as, as city women, and, and their version of poverty was very much more, um, looked a lot more like what Matthew Desmond wrote about. Mm-hmm. But this is, you know, I wrote about my mother and grandmother's experiences of, you know, just, con- you know, there's a, a constant changing of addresses, like within two square miles, and, and thus my, my mom would change school districts three times in a year. And, that had to do with eviction notices. It had to do with um, sometimes as women f- fleeing dangerous men. Um, there are there are all sorts of reasons that which ev- the book Evicted um, does a great job of articulating. As far as how that plays out in the rural space now, I think that um, so. You and I was a child in the eighties. This is when um, I think we we first began talking as a nation about the quote unquote farm farm crisis. And um, you would hear um, family farms are going under, they're dying. And that was the, um, the context of my childhood, being, being born and growing up in a place that people would refer to as dying mm-hmm. in economic terms. Uh, we held on to our farm until I was in college uh, in the late 90s, but um, that was beating the odds in many ways. And, um, and so really the... The relationship between rootedness or like getting booted out of your home in rural places has a lot to do with the forces of corporate agriculture, big ag, federal policy that um, uh, favors mass production over the small family farm, and and so it's a, a it's a it's a very different version of of what happens in the city, but it is similarly you know essentially economic forces making it impossible or untenable for people to remain in the place that they consider their home, whether it's the actual physical structure of a house or the land that they have owned. And it looks different, but there are certainly parallels. And I, and I think that um, this is a, uh, has a lot of very dangerous repercussions for, for society. One is that it is just incredibly taxing upon those good, productive people um, to uh, contend with that sort of psychological and economic stress of being uprooted and moved around. Um, but then it, it, it also just, um, as you said in your question, it, uh, it sort of um, 
uh, detaches or removes people from just a sense of community. And mm-hmm. I think that's, da- that's dangerous for democracy because when people don't have time or, um, or uh, even um, uh, physical presence to be engaged in um, civic action or community decisions or any sense of participating in the fabric of their local area, um, that leaves uh, real vulnerability for outside forces and um, uh, nefarious forces to come in and, and impact those decisions. That's that's so it's so interesting the way that you've framed that because I think when a lot of people who may be unfamiliar think of like farm life in my mind I always just assume that other people think that it's basically like a Norman Rockwell painting or like mm. what people consider farm life is really just like those few moments when what feels like 80% of people go to a farm in the you know in the fall and go like pick apples or something like that like but when in reality right. that is just not the, that's not how you know farmers and people who you know have small farms and are part of small farm communities. That's not how they live their lives at all. Like you said, it's being encroached upon constantly by this big agriculture, and it's really yes. a lot a lost, almost like a lost kind of. I don't want to say civilization because that sounds that's a bit big, but it is. It's like a lost mm. version of a part of what made this country. Yes, absolutely. Um, and, you know, there's um, a writer I admire very much, Wendell Berry, who oh, is yeah. a, an activist and, and a kind of philosopher in, um, as, as a farmer in Kentucky, uh, writes a lot about exactly that. And he calls it, you know, a, agrarian life. And, and I think he would say that we, we could re- rebuild that, um, you know, if you want to call it a, a civilization proper mm-hmm. um but but at the moment um you know we for for uh at, at least decades and maybe more have been making decisions as a country that devalue that space so much that it is um yeah it's there there's still certainly those like earthy beauties to be had when you, when you <laughs> talk about the, the norman rockwell vision of it but and 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 there are aspects of that in my upbringing that i'm so grateful for but it was also a bunch of like you know um, chemical companies telling us it was safe to douse our earth in something that we later found out it wasn't, and just um, you know, it's 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 a dangerous um, and often in in modern terms toxic life, uh, and and uh, and then often those people are are held accountable <laughs> for for the sins of the industry that really, as far as I'm concerned, happen at the very top, and and then uh, farmers like the ones I grew up with are are the workers that catch hell for it. Mm-hmm. Um, so speaking of you know how how you grew up and you know people who who read your book will you know, will know and like you just mentioned you're you know, you're a fifth generation you know farmer you know as where you came from and I'm curious and apologies if this is like a massive question but how did you manage to kind of personally you know break that cycle like was there something early on in your life that sparked in your brain like a yearn to kind of change the path that your family line had been on for so many generations. Yeah, you know, when when we're kids, I think it, it, it's hard to know why or how certain things happen at the psychological level. But um, but I I do know this much. When I was a kid, I was just the I think whatever predisposition led me to become a writer, uh, and and this would have been true regardless of where and how I grew up. But I I was just because of my nature uh, a always looking around and observing in a in a way that when I look back it occurs to me 
made me different from most of the kids around me. Um, so I was, um, you know, just very, I, I was always observing, and I think that that kind of just surveying my environment and collecting information in that sort of way, it, it, it gave me the first step necessary to, you know, break some cycle, which is to discern that there's a cycle to begin with. So I, I sensed as a child, I understood somehow, okay, there have all, all these generations of my family have these recurring themes of um, alcoholism, teen pregnancy, not finishing high school. And I had just the vaguest sense that if I wanted to have some, like a, a different outcome in my life than, than some of them did uh, in terms of undesirable outcomes, um, then, then I would, I should do something different. I should somehow make different choices or, or seek to have a different input in order for the output to look different. Um, and you know, I, as I, I was also a very bookish kid and the, the path that our democracy offers for a, a child like me to have a different sort of life um, would be public education, and that, and I was very well suited for that particular path because I, I was an, an academic bookish kid. So I think that sort of um, mix of factors was uh, to, to my benefit. If if the goal was to have a different life than my family, but I but I want to add that my goal was never. You know, I appreciate so much that when you asked that question, you didn't say, how did you get out? <laughs> because <laughs> I, that was never, you know, I, I, I don't like that framing because it was never that I didn't want to live where I'm from. In fact, I'm, I'm talking to you from Kansas right now. It's right. still my home, even though I've lived in, in some other places along the way. But um, I, I, I didn't want to get out. I, did, I just, I didn't want to be poor. And mm -hmm. I didn't want to um, work my butt off in a way that was um, not fairly compensated, and I didn't want my day-to-day -day job to poison me and threaten my life in very mortal ways, and that's true for the vast majority of my family and has been for generations. That's what I wanted to get out of. Um, it wasn't my home or my place, and so what, what I seek to do with my book is, is look at this troubling um, situation we've created in the country where just for economic survival, people um, have no choice but to leave their home. Um, and then that has created all sorts of like political and, and uh, economic and cultural imbalances that um, you know, I always want to be mindful of when I answer questions like that. Um, okay, so I'm actually glad you brought that up because I, I knew that you, you know, you're from Kansas and, and still residing in Kansas. So you know, mm -hmm. we talked about, about spent about 20 minutes of really heavy stuff, but I'm just curious, mm -hmm. what's mm -hmm. like a common misconception um, that people have about Kansas, or maybe people from Kansas that you want to dispel? Mm. Well, I would have to say we, in recent, in the last 10 years, we most often have made national headlines for, you know, a really far right um, legislature and mm -hmm. governor. And so in and probably the biggest misconception right now would be in the political realm. Um, and, and I think that we, we have such a reductive way of talking about politics in the country that, you know, we say red state and blue state. Mm -hmm. And you look at this graphic on CNN and it would suggest that half of the country is just teeming with all conservatives and the other half is all um, liberals. And, of course, that's not how it looks on the ground at all. 
And uh, Kansas is a place that, like many, um, due to various factors, including who does and doesn't vote, uh, has had a, a, a state-level government that didn't necessarily represent the majority of its people uh, for quite a few years. Um, that uh, political tide has been turning the last couple of years with a more moderate legislature, and uh, we just elected an incoming Democratic female governor and sent uh, first Native American uh, woman to Congress from our third congressional district. and. Um, so I, I think that uh, Kansas on, on the ground is a more politically diverse place than people would think. Yeah, you sure did do that. I remember like watching on election night specifically, like they kept going to the Kansas races. I was that was that's that's a, that was impressive. I think you're right. It, I think there's so many misconceptions because of like you said when someone sees red state, blue state, you know, red county, blue county. There's just there's, and I know what a lot of it has to do with how we ingest media now because we get mm-hmm. these like short bursts, whether it's from social media or just people just reading headlines and only going to the places that, you know, lean the way that they lean. So they assume it's one end of the spectrum or the other. But I feel like a lot of times the only moments we really have to realize things aren't a certain way really is like election night when it, the, it's cut and dry like no look these particular people voted this particular way and it was a really close margin and um yeah i just think a lot of that has to do with how we are ingesting media yes yeah very well said and and i you know along the way of my um uh commenting on socioeconomic class in this country i often find that i have occasion to be a kind of media critic as a as a member of the journalism industry mm-hmm who takes issue with exactly what you just said. Uh, And I think that we we can do better uh, in the way that we frame the conversation and and the questions that we ask um, often are are like the the root of the problem in in our misperceptions of ourselves as a country. And um, a lot of that has to do with the um, conflict-driven nature of um, profit-motivated corporate media. Um, but, uh, and, and, and it's a big, big problem to solve. So I, I'm always, that's why I, I love books and I love, uh, book people because they tend to value nuance rather than just very simple, reductive, uh, conversations. And I do think that that's like at this crisis moment in our country, nuance and, and deep story rather than just quick sound bites is the only way we're going to write the ship. Oh yeah, and I mean, especially I I can't even imagine as a a female you know kind of political journalist in in the media who like I said has a substantial social media presence. Like I can't imagine the messages that you get from people because it's just you know people go and they see the political commentators they want to watch on the news, and then the only mm-hmm. time they interact with people from the other side is if they see a headline that you would write out, you know, on, on maybe you send out a tweet and I just imagine them not clicking through, not reading the facts and instead just being in general pretty horrible because they think they have that, you know, shade of an, of anonymity on, on social media. Yes. Yes. Oh yes. You're right about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That, that wasn't even a question so much as just to like, sometimes I just feel like I need to apologize for people who have a platform. Just be like, I can't, I don't know why I'm apologizing, but I just feel like <laughs> someone deserves to give you an apology. 
Oh, very kind of you. I don't hold you accountable for their actions, but thanks. <laughs> well, thanks. Um, so I actually want to get into uh, one other thing. I know that you know your book was selected by Sarah Jessica Parker for the ALA Book Club Central uh, Book Club. Mm-hmm. So what was that kind of feeling like as someone who obviously is so well-read and so, cares so much about books and things like that? What was that kind of moment like seeing that your book was selected for the Book Club Central Book Club? Well, I was over the moon, of course, uh, and for, for various reasons, but the first being that, uh, you know, I, I write about economic inequality, and, and often that involves kind of the, the um, political tension in this country between private and public spheres. And I, as, as a kid who grew up um, not uh, having much in a material way and um, n- not steeped in books uh in in just uh in the context of my my family and my community i don't come really from like a a strong book culture my mom was a reader but i say I, i say that because um you know it wasn't for lack of intellect or curiosity that that those folks um, didn't have houses full of books. It, it was for it was for lack of money and and the economic and, and socioeconomic cultural factors that determine uh, whether people can go to you know like an independent bookstore and pay full price for for a big thick book or not. And so uh, libraries were extremely important to me as a kid. Being in a rural area, I didn't have close proximity to them. But when I got the chance to go, it was a magical experience where. Um, you know, it wasn't like my experience being in a store where everything I looked at, my in, in immediate understanding was, you can't have that. I didn't even bother to ask. <laughs> um, but in a library, you can have anything. And um, and I just think that that is such a, an incredible uh, gift to our democracy. And so that Sarah Jessica Parker picked my book for a, um, you know, a, a book club, a national book club, project that is, that is rooted in um, and promoted by uh, the American Library Association just um, ha- had a real, um, uh, it, it touched me deeply mm-hmm. in that way. And, and I'm also just excited, you know, that, that her uh, celebrity and platform means that, that more people will, uh, will come to the story. I will say, and your book included, uh, Sarah Jessica Parker has a pretty good eye for books, man. The books she's been picking the past year or so and the the publication house that she's kind of creating, she's got a good list of, uh, she's got a good eye to her when it comes to to literary things. Oh, yes, yes. I feel like I've been put in very good company. No (laughs) no doubt about that. (laughs) Okay, so we like to end our podcast with what we call the Nerd Nine. They're just nine lighthearted questions, almost the opposite of what we just spent the last half hour talking about. Kind of like a palate cleanser, I suppose. Um, So the first one is, what's the last book you finished reading? Uh, The last book I finished reading was um, The Art of Loading... uh, Brush by Wendell Berry, mm-hmm. um, which is uh, very much about local economies and it's rooted in kind of agricultural conversation. But I think it's it's relevant to our big big picture. Do you have a favorite place to read? Uh, favorite place to read um, would definitely be 
my cushy sofa in the living room because if I can't read in bed, I no matter how good it is, I fall asleep. Mm-hmm. This is no criticism of the author. I just can't do it. <laughs> um, do you remember the book that kind of made you fall in love with reading when you were a kid? Yeah, I do. Um, and, well, it might be overreaching to say that because I, I had already loved many books, but I, I remember being... Um, deeply struck by Laura Ingalls Wilder, Laura Ingalls Wilder's books when I was a kid, mm-hmm. um, probably for obvious reasons, because it's <laughs> about a little girl on the prairie in Kansas, mm-hmm. and that was, you know, in a very different time, um, my identity as well. And uh, so, yeah, I would say a little house on the prairie. Yeah. Uh, what's one place you would like to travel that you have not yet been to? I have never been to, on the continent of Asia, so um, which is quite vast, of course, and I'd love to go anywhere on it. <laughs> there you go. Um, do you have a favorite holiday to celebrate? Favorite holiday is probably Halloween. Okay. Uh, coffee or tea? Coffee. Cats or dogs? Whew, that's tough, but <laughs> I'm going to edge out with cats. Okay. Uh, how about a favorite food? Uh, here in Wichita, Kansas, we have an incredible uh, uh, Mexican cuisine. Lots of folks um, from that neck of the woods in, in Kansas um, through various industries. So any Mexican food. Okay. That's really interesting. Where I'm from, we have a massive Puerto Rican culture. And so I also lean towards Latin American food. Interesting. Mm, awesome. Um, and then if you could have dinner with one person, dead or alive, who would you pick? Oh, my gosh. This is probably, you know, in the 21st century, a very cliche response to this, but I'm going to go with Barack Obama, and I'll tell you why. Because, <laughs> like me, uh, he had he had a working-class mom from Wichita, and he was largely raised by his working-class Wichita grandparents. And, um, and, and I, I wouldn't um, be so bold as to claim we have any other <laughs> similarities, but I admire him deeply, and, and I, I feel like... Uh, he might even dig my book, so he'd, he'd be my dream dinner date. Listen, it's not as cliche as you think because uh, the all the times we've asked this, Michelle actually has been named more times than Barack, so it's not that oh. cliche. <laughs> all right, well, I wouldn't turn her down, I can do that. <laughs> That's fair. Okay, last question for you. Uh, what do you hope that readers take away from reading Heartland? Well, I think that'd be um, kind of two sides of the same coin. One would be if it's readers for whom the place and class I have described feel very familiar, then I would hope that they feel a sense of validation or um, dignity in the way they've been represented that perhaps is too often lacking in pop culture and literature. And for uh, readers for whom that place and class feels quite foreign and, and like nothing they've experienced firsthand, I would I would hope they might find more complexity and nuance um, about the the characters and and places described um, that might do a little bit of stereotype busting in their minds. That's perfect. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today. This was phenomenal. This was great, Adam. Thanks for the good questions. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can add these titles to their collections and marketplace.
Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.